Well, last weekend, Pastor John looked at Acts chapter 13. And he looked at that chapter from the perspective of our individual purpose as we have been designed by God. Today I want to revisit that same chapter, but I want to consider it from the perspective of a purpose that we all share and how that purpose has very practical, practical implications for our lives and for our emotional health. Now, the text that I want to use as a jumping-off point, and nothing more than that, is Acts 13, verses 2 and 3. It says, And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. I've entitled this weekend's teaching, A Mission-Centric Mindset. A Mission-Centric Mindset. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we're so thankful you're in the room with us. The eternal God who existed before the heavens and the earth is in this very room with us present in his Holy Spirit to minister to our hearts. What an awesome privilege is ours. And Father, I pray we would always appreciate that and always seek to take full advantage of it. Father, as always, I pray that you would grant me a fresh infilling from your Holy Spirit, apart from which I can do nothing. I pray that you would enable each of us to understand your perspective on who we are and what life is about, and then go out and put it into action. I pray that you would grow your church. I pray that you would mature your church. I pray that you would use your church. And I pray that your church would be grounded in your unchanging word. So with these as our heart's desires, we say, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us and melt us and mold us and use us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we study God's Word together today, may the Lord be with you. As I'm sure you've noticed, there are times when navigating the intersection of the events of our lives with our faith is relatively easy. Not a lot of thought required. But then there are other times when navigating the intersection of our life events and our faith is really complex and challenging. Something like making your way from the far left lane to the far right lane on the Fort Pitt Bridge during bumper-to-bumper traffic one half hour after the Steelers have lost a home game against the seven-point underdog. And there you find a perfect storm of anger, frustration, <laughs> alcohol, impatience, and a very difficult traffic pattern. Sometimes when life and our faith intersect, that's what it feels like. Sometimes it feels like 
it's going to be impossible for us to avoid a collision between life and our faith. And when we find ourselves in those kind of settings, all of us tend to do the same thing. We tend to look for help in the behavioral passages of Scripture. And by that I mean the biblical verses that either call us to do something or tell us to stop doing something. Those are also the passages we tend to highlight and underline, the behavioral passages of Scripture. But as I'm sure you've discovered by now, when you're confused or when you're frustrated, those behavioral passages, do this, don't do that, they aren't always helpful. In fact, the truth is, sometimes they just make matters worse. And there's a reason for that, a very good reason. It's often our convictions more than our conduct that causes our struggles. What we think rather than what we do causes our struggles. And if you attempt to adjust your convictions, your thinking, by simply doing certain things or not doing certain things, you've got to discover you've put the cart ahead of the horse. And that's always a recipe for frustration. Now, Jesus' followers aren't the only people with convictions. A conviction is defined as a firmly held belief. And everybody firmly believes in something. But since our focus is upon the church, upon us as believers, let me suggest that our convictions are the way we view God, His activities, and ourselves as his people. Your convictions are how you view God, God's activities, and yourself as one of his children. And if your convictions don't align with Scripture and with the Holy Spirit, then trouble is just around the next bend or just over the horizon. It's inevitable. And here's why. Our convictions shape our expectations of life. And then our expectations shape our reactions to life. That is so important to good spiritual and emotional health. I want to invite you to read that statement with me in your best public discourse voice, all right? No no mumbling, all right? Our convictions shape our expectations of life, and our expectations shape our reactions to life. See, the importance of your expectations cannot be overstated. A great deal of your emotional, spiritual, and relational health hinges upon your expectations. Your expectations determine whether you enter a life event in the disappointment column or the divine appointment column. Differing explanations explain why two people can react to the same exact event in totally opposite fashion. Now, the fact that our convictions and the expectations that they birth are so important explains why Scripture devotes so many of its pages to stories rather than commandments and rather than instructions. You see, some of the most valuable lessons Scripture offers to you and to me are embedded 
in Scripture's stories. Narratives that capture what God is up to in the world, what God is up to in his people, and all the ways that that can play out. And as we're going to see today, some of those lessons that are embedded in the stories of Scripture, they don't announce their presence to the casual reader. To uncover them, you have to take some time, you have to take some effort, and you have to learn how to read between the lines. And reading between the lines of Scripture is a perfectly acceptable exercise because the Holy Spirit who wrote Scripture is in you. And the Holy Spirit knows what's in between the lines. And he'll guide you as you read between the lines and listen for God in between the lines. Listen for the story behind the story. Now, Acts 12 and 13 are a prime example of what I'm talking about. Without mentioning either one, those two chapters offer us valuable insights for effectively handling two things that we don't like but that we cannot avoid. I'm talking about changes and delays. Changes and delays. And you know as well as I do that we struggle with changes and with delays even when we know they're ordered by God. Maybe especially when we know they're ordered by God. And especially when both change and delay show up hand in hand at the same time. But even though we all struggle with changes and delays, we don't all handle our struggle the same way. See, where change is concerned, let's start with that. Some believers are resistors and some believers are seekers. Now, resistors are the believers who oppose virtually all change. Maybe you know somebody like that. Maybe you are somebody like that. To resistors, all change feels like a loss. All change feels like a threat. In contrast, seekers are always tenaciously pursuing change, but for all the wrong reasons. They always want things to change in the hope that it will cure their chronic fidgeting, their impatience, their unrest. Resistors, they fall prey to fear. Seekers fall prey to false hopes. And by the way, if you have both in a congregation, things can get really, really interesting. And what about delays? Well, where delays are concerned, some believers yield to impatience and run ahead. And others yield to despair and then run out of hope. Now, thankfully, thankfully, Acts offers a better way. But it's not what you might expect. Not what you might expect. Acts demonstrates that mission-centric faith accepts divinely ordered changes and delays and actually grows in their presence. It doesn't fear change and delay. It doesn't seek change and delay. It doesn't resist either one. It doesn't grow impatient in the midst of them. It doesn't despair. 
Now, what do I mean by mission-centric faith? It's really quite simple. Mission-centric faith is faith that interprets everything in light of God's mission in the world. It interprets everything in light of what God's up to in the world. And that interpretation shapes its convictions, its expectations, and its reactions. Now, when a congregation embraces mission-centric mindset and a mission-centric faith, then God's stated desire to save and restore people everywhere becomes that congregation's priority, that congregation's passion, and its organizing principle for everything that it does. It also becomes the lens through which it looks at changes and delays. Everything centers around lost people coming to Jesus, not American politics, not the economy, not immigration, not education, not health care, not national security, not safety concerns, not terrorism, not personal comfort, not convenience, not possessions, and certainly not the pursuit of happiness. You can have valid concerns in all of those areas. You can hold to many concerns, but you can only have one center. Now, the stories of Acts remind us that the early church didn't become mission-centric overnight. After all, as we've already seen, after centuries of separation from them, the Samaritans in the Gentile world, the idea of mission engagement represented a monumental change. It put them on a steep learning curve, and as we already know, there was initial resistance. But once that early church grasped what God was up to and made it their conviction, they adjusted to the sweeping changes that God was making. And they did so without resistance, without resentment, or a sense of resignation. As the story behind the story affirms, in the space of a few years and a few verses, that church went through monumental changes and monumental delays and landed on their feet. For example, in the space of a few verses in this portion of Acts, we watch as Peter essentially disappears from the pages of Acts. Despite all those years of preparation under Jesus, all that mentoring, despite a gracious but humbling restoration, Despite his incredible spirit-filled courage, despite his powerful preacher that resulted in thousands coming into the kingdom, despite a couple of miraculous escapes from prison, Peter essentially disappears as the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he disappears as the leader of the broader church everywhere. In Jerusalem, he gave way to James, the brother of Jesus. In the larger church, he gave way to Paul. And yet nowhere, nowhere 
do you read of Peter pouting or being resentful or resisting the change? And we know it wasn't because Peter was weak and easygoing. He was anything but. So how did he accept being pushed to the margins so graciously? How did he accept stepping out of the spotlight and into the shadows like a gentleman? He was able to do that. He was able to embrace that change because Peter had become mission-centric. He shaped his expectations in light of what God was up to in the world. And he and his fellow Jerusalem believers recognized that following Jesus is all about God's agenda. It's not about human personalities. It's not about human reputations. It's not about human positions. And it certainly isn't about human power. So let me suggest if you are easily frustrated by changes in your life, by delays in your life, it just may indicate that one or more of those inappropriate focus, personality, reputation, position, or power has come into play. And that needs to change. In addition to Peter's change, there was great change for the Jerusalem congregation. They were the mother church. They were the very first church. But their role as the epicenter of the broader church comes to an end in Acts 12 and 13. And that distinction was passed to a newcomer, the church up in Antioch. And yet we don't read of the people in the Jerusalem congregation hurling accusations at the folks up in Antioch. We don't read of wounded pride. We don't read of them making ungodly comparisons. We don't read of them questioning the other church's spirituality because they had a mission-centric mindset. They expected changes. Getting back to Peter, I want to remind you there's no hint whatsoever that he lost his leading role because of failure, because of faltering faith, or because of faulty decisions. And Peter wasn't pushed out by some misguided competitor. Everything was good in Peter's life. He was a godly, spirit-filled ambassador for Christ, making a difference in his world. It was simply time for him and the church to embrace God's next thing. And God always has a next thing. So this massive transition, a change in leadership, a change in the role of the Jerusalem congregation, unfolded peaceably without a lot of ugly postings on Facebook. And Luke reported it in very simple, matter-of-fact fashion. Because just like Peter and the others, he understood that when the Spirit leads God's character, God's Word, and God's mission, they remain the same. But everything else is subject to change. God never changes. His Word never changes. His mission never changes. Everything else is subject to change. God moves His work. God moves His workers as He sees fit. 
Something else Acts demonstrates. Mission-centric people understand that delays are not denials. A delay doesn't mean God's saying no to you. And Saul's story illustrates that. You may remember at his conversion, God promised, son, one day you are going to witness before kings and before the Gentile world. That didn't happen overnight. Here's something we often forget. After God made that promise to Saul, who we would later know by his Greek name, Paul, God led Saul into the desert for three years, during which time we read nothing about what he was doing. Some have referred to it as God's seminary because most seminary programs are three years long. God was obviously training him, but he went into the desert. Nobody heard from him for three years. And then that was followed by two preaching stints, and both of them were cut short because of opposition, persecution, and danger. And then he stayed for a while in his home city. And then he took a staff position at the Antioch Church. Maybe he was their director of adult ministries. So when the Spirit finally ordered his first missionary excursion, it was 11 years after Saul received the promise. Not 11 weeks. Not 11 months. 11 years. And nowhere do we read that Saul got frustrated, despaired, and doubted the promise of God. Instead, we read that he involved himself in active service. Because waiting on God is a far cry from doing nothing and hoping for a break. Maybe you've heard the name George Mueller. George Mueller received a promise from God as a young man that he would one day be an evangelist to the world, similar to a Billy Graham. But that didn't happen immediately in his life. And so, George Mueller just addressed a need that was at hand. There were a lot of children without parents in Britain in his day. And they were getting caught up into crime and they were being abused and they were starving and they were dying. So George Mueller started orphanages in London and all across England. And for decade after decade after decade after decade after decade, George Mueller ran orphanages. And then, when he hit 80, God opened the door, and for the next decade, he was the most renowned evangelist in the world. But you see, while he was waiting, he did the work that was at hand. And mission-centric people prepare for their future assignments by performing the work at hand. And there is always work at hand that God desires you to be involved in. 
Saul and Barnabas weren't called as they sat waiting for the call. He called yet? No. Okay, well, we'll just keep waiting. No, they were called while they were ministering to the Lord in the church in Antioch. Not as they sat and waited for the call. Because mission-centric thinkers go to work inside delays. Let me say that again. Mission-centric thinkers get to work when they find themselves in a delay. By the way, while Mueller was working in orphanages, he was living in almost daily miracles and answers to prayer. And he subsequently wrote books on prayer based on all that work he did while he waited for the promise. And here's the irony. The people he led to Jesus, they're all dead and gone. The books he wrote on prayer are still being read today all around the world and have influenced believers for over a century. So here's the wrap-up. If I were to ask you this question, what is the best way to learn how to deal with the unanticipated changes and the lengthy delays that are often a part of our lives? How would you answer? If I just hit you with that question cold, I suspect some would say, well, best way to deal with change and delay, pray for patience. Maybe some would say, Read biblical verses about assurance. Ask God for his comfort. But I seriously doubt many of you would answer this way. Pastor, that's easy. Best way to deal with changes and delays, take a mission-centric view of life. But see, as strange as it may sound, that is the best answer. Because mission-centric hearts don't stumble over changes or delays. They expect both. So they keep working, and they listen for God. So do yourself a world of good. Spare yourself a world of unnecessary frustration by continually reminding yourself that following Jesus is about you, but it's not primarily about you. It's primarily about God's mission in the world. And your expectations need to reflect that fact. Otherwise, you'll find yourself entertaining unwelcomed emotions and wasting eternal opportunities. So expect changes. Expect delays. And when they come, don't see them as interruptions to God's will. See them as introductions to God's work. Not interruptions to his will, but introductions to his work. God is up to something awesome in his world, and you and I are privileged to be part of it. So you see, when we talk to you about missions at ACAC, which we often do, we're not doing so just so that you will financially support the work of sharing the gospel around the world. We're talking to you about aligning your thinking with God in such a way that it will help you deal with anything and everything you face in Pittsburgh tomorrow. Mission-centric thinking isn't just for the benefit. 
of people around the globe who need Jesus. It's the best way to experience abundant life. Let's pray. Father, often the word mission and missions in churches gets something of a bad rap. We immediately think about sending people halfway around the world. We think about offerings to make that possible, and we yawn. And we don't see the connection with our life in the office, our life in the neighborhood, our life at home. But Lord, I pray that this simple story and the backstory and the reading between the lines will remind us that two of the biggest things we struggle with, changes and delays, become allies rather than adversaries when we have mission-centric thinking. So not just for your glory, not just for the sake of lost people, but for the sake of those who are your people. Help us to think mission-centric and to develop a mission-centric mindset. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Final thought. If your goal this week is to simply get through the week, you'll be frustrated quite easily. But if your goal is to play your part in God getting through to somebody who needs Jesus, then you will live abundantly even when you don't know what's going on. God bless you.